You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, good morning and welcome to our Sunday gathering. My name is Josh. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer. And I want to welcome you if you're a guest with us. We're so glad that you're here. I know sometimes it can be hard coming into uh, a church where you don't know many people, and there's lots of new faces, and we just want to welcome you. hope you were greeted and welcomed warmly as you came in here today. also want to say to you, you know, I wouldn't want to get in trouble, say to you mothers, happy Mother's Day, such a joyous occasion to celebrate that. Um, I also want to recognize that Mother's Day can be a difficult day, that maybe perhaps it brings up a strained relationship, or it brings up loss, or, or infertility, or, um, or some other painful emotion. Just recognize for wherever you're at today, whether that's celebrating your mom, or even grieving the loss of your mom, or the relationship, that, that God has grace for you today. In fact, we believe that every time we gather as his people, that he meets us with particular grace for us in the moment just as we need it. So as we go to his word, as we take the sacrament of communion later, may we know that God has grace for all of us this morning. Well, last week, Jordan uh, walked us through Mark chapter 3. We've been in a study of the gospel of Mark over the last few months. And Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, really challenged us to consider the danger of doubt. And ultimately, there was this danger of doubting Jesus, and not just doubting Jesus, but uh, attributing to the Holy Spirit uh, that, it, that it, the Holy Spirit was doing a work of evil. Essentially, we saw that, that there was this warning against blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which meant to reject the work that Jesus was doing and to, in fact, call it evil. And there was this warning last week that we, if we reject Jesus and his work empowered by the Spirit, that there is no forgiveness to be had anywhere else. That God has promised to bring redemption and forgiveness and new life in the Messiah Jesus, and we would not find it anywhere else. And today we pick up in chapter 4, and we're going to primarily hang out in verses 1 through 20, although I'm going to reference a few verses surrounding this, uh, this text But in our text today, Jesus is going to teach in parables, beginning with the parable of the sower. And we'll see today that Jesus' parables are the primary way in which he's going to teach people about the kingdom of God. Parables have a way of inviting us to see with our imagination what is hidden uh, to our senses, what is hidden from plain sight. You see, the kingdom Jesus teaches about is not easily visible, nor is it happening as many people in his time or in our time expect. And this brings us to an enormous challenge um, when we encounter Jesus and his teachings about the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom he is ushering in is not obvious, it's not immediate, and it's not yet fully revealed. And if we fail to look closely, if we avert our attention too quickly, we might just miss it. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into chapter 4 of Mark's gospel. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you this morning asking for illumination, that as we open up your gospel and hear the words from our very Savior himself, that they would penetrate our hearts 
Lord, I, I, I recognize in the text we read, there are barriers to us receiving your word, but we pray this morning that your spirit would cultivate the soft soil of our souls so that we might receive you, so that we might be a people who believe and obey your word and bear fruit. We need your help, Holy Spirit. We need your grace to infuse us this morning as we go to your word. We praise you, God, that you've promised to meet with us when we gather around your word, and we can be assured that you are here, moving, nourishing, speaking through the word. It is in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, let's jump back in to the text, starting uh, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, and then we'll work our way through. Verse 1, again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and set in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in this teaching, he said to them, now let's pause here for just a second. I want to set the scene for us, okay? I want to set your imagination. Jesus and his disciples have been operating primarily around the region of Galilee, And in this scene, Jesus is teaching by the Sea of Galilee, which is really more of a lake, uh, this this body of water surrounded by the territory of Galilee. And we learn that that a very large crowd begins to gather around Jesus. He's teaching, and more and more people start filing in. Um, And Jesus, uh, very interestingly, kind of retreats into a boat to kind of maybe have some space between the crowd so he can, he can teach to them, essentially sitting on the boat on the sea as they are on the soil. And there's this sense in our scene, it's not just a crowd gathering, but there's this sense of buzz and momentum. Perhaps the expectations of the Messiah and all that he would do for them are, are, are in the air, and people are wondering, what is he going to do next? Is he fulfill kind of all that we dreamed and we hoped for. Um, how many of you are college football fans? Raise your hand. I want to see, right? College football fan? Okay. Not as many as I expected. Um, no problem if you're not. But if you're a college football fan, uh, most likely the first game of the season, uh, your team is going to have a, it's going to be a sellout. Right? There's going to be the commentators, the radio personalities, they're going to be, this is the year, right? Everybody has high expectations. Um, and, and, and there's a but, like everybody's cheering, everybody's into the game, there's kickoff, and, and hopes are high. But if you're a Texas fan, and I'll be honest, or a Texas Tech fan, or Aggies, let's go ahead and say it, you too, right? You, you've learned over the years that what is expectation and buzz and hype often quickly fizzles out, Right? Sometimes it might last through that first game, sometimes it's game three, game four, but eventually you realize, hey, this, this isn't our year. Perhaps like me, you learned the lesson, it's not a great idea to stake your hope on 19-year-old dudes running around with a ball. But this is part of our scene. There's an excitement in the air about what Jesus might do. And like Jordan mentioned last week in his sermon, there are expectations perhaps of political or military might that Jesus Maybe this is the revolution. Maybe Jesus is finally going to overthrow our Roman oppressors. Maybe Jesus is going to set everything right, kind of just snap his fingers, and boom, the kingdom of God comes. And while Jesus has come to bring about a revolution of sorts, 
He's come to bring about a new rule in a new kingdom. It's not going to be like they were thinking or expecting. You see, like us, they were people often merely thinking about what's right in front of them. They too wanted a quick fix solution. They wanted snap your finger tangible results. They wanted progress without pain and sacrifice. And so Jesus begins to teach them, and he does so in parables. Now, a parable at its kind of simplest form is a short moral story with symbolic meaning attached. That's kind of the basic definition of a parable. But parables have a way of inviting us to imagine or grasp in our mind's eye what we cannot see uh, in front of us, right? So he's teaching them about a, a kingdom that is hidden, and the parables are going to help people imagine an imagery that they would have had in, in their imagination about something that they cannot see. Um, one of the church fathers, Cyril of Alexandria, says this about parables. He says, Parables are word pictures not of visible things, but rather of things of the mind and the spirit. That which cannot be seen with the eyes of the body, a parable will reveal to the eyes of the mind, informing the subtle, uh, subtlety of the intellect by means of things perceivable by the senses as if it were tangible. You see, one of the greatest challenges of Jesus' teaching and the kingdom that he's, this good news of the kingdom that he's bringing, is that the kingdom was hidden. It wasn't immediately obvious. It had arrived in the person of Jesus, but like the passage says later, and if you go on to read further in Mark's gospel, it is, it is here in seed form. We're going to see that image quite a bit in Jesus' parables. The kingdom is here, but it's here in seed form. Now, I love that Jesus um, teaches in parables, and when he does, one of the coolest things is he uses imagery that, that the people of the time would have, would, have had, would have called up rather easily, right? They were an agrarian uh, community. And so when he's talking about seeds and trees and plants and fields and vineyards, all the images we get, Jesus is really relating to their culture. He's pulling from things they can see visibly that they would have recalled very easily and using those simple things to teach them about things that are hidden, and so he's engaging the social imagination of the people that he's talking to. I also love parables. I'm just giving you my top three parables. Well, I love parables list real quick. But I also love parables because in creation, God has actually revealed hidden mysteries about himself. That in fact, when we look at the, at the creation, what, what theologians call natural revelation, when we look at creation, it actually reflects back things that are true about God. So when we look at, we talk about the process of a seed and a tree and growth and being planted in the ground, there are spiritual realities that God has put in nature to reveal himself. Now, let's take, continue reading in, in the parable, and starting in verse 3. Jesus says to them, he says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and he, as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell along rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. 
and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing uh, and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. So if you take a minute and you slow down as I'm reading this, I would guess that nearly everyone in this room, although we don't live in an agrarian community, you have images that start popping up in your mind about what we're reading on the text. That's part of what the parable's work is to do, to start giving you imagery of things you can imagine to, to teach you about things you have, that no eye has seen. And you probably have uh, 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 some images that start coming up as we read this and you slowly go through it. Part of how we read parables, by the way, is not to just speed through it, but to slow down and really meditate on it. Think about it, imagine it, let it engage our imaginations. And if we do that, we begin to listen. We begin to have these images that come up. But it's one thing to imagine the story. It's another to grasp what it's actually meaning. And Jesus goes on to explain what he means about this parable to his disciples. Look at verses 10 through 12. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You see, Jesus teaches of the hidden kingdom of God in parables, and their meaning is only opened up when people come and turn to him. You see, the, con the condition of the human heart, which we'll go on to talk about these different types of soils here in a moment, but the condition of the human heart is hardened towards God. It's not receiving the word of God. We could even imagine the parable, but it just kind of hits and it's like, okay, right? It, it, it doesn't really go anywhere. But Jesus tells these disciples that the meaning, it only begins to make sense when we come to Jesus, when we humble ourselves and come to to him. And I think it's important for us to say here, Jesus is not being mean. He's not a deceptive teacher. Like he's, he's, he's not trying to deceive people. But he's explaining a reality that his message will be utterly foolish to those whose hearts are hardened, primarily because the soil of their hearts, of their souls, are hardened towards God. Remember, just, a, just last week, we're talking, Jesus was talking to the religious leaders who were filled with pride in their religion, in their culture, in themselves. And he's, and he's recognizing the reality that people will not receive his message, not because there's something wrong with the seed, which is the message, the word about Christ, Christ, <clears throat> but because there's an issue with the soil. You see, the chief parable, this parable of the sower, recognizes the challenge of believing in a hidden kingdom. And the equally uh, formidable challenge that this seed that this sower is throwing out is falling upon very difficult soil. You know, one of, one of the conversations we often have at our house with our kids, one of the questions I get often is, Dad, uh, but if God is real, why can't we see him? You know, why can't we see him? Um, and this is, this is a real challenge for our faith. Uh, it's a challenge for us, isn't it? And it's okay for you to admit and recognize that it, it is difficult to believe in a hidden Christ who rules over a hidden kingdom. Right? Let's, be, let's just be clear. 
we believe in God, but we don't believe or have faith in God like we have faith in our kitchen sink, right? You can go home and, and your kitchen sink is there and you believe in it to a certain extent. Our belief and faith in God is not in this literal, concrete way like the kitchen sink. So we're called to, to live by faith. And we have to accept that we live in a culture where real often equates to something tangible or material. Something perceivable with human senses. And we have to recognize that, uh, that anything we can't perceive in this way, of like our kitchen sink, is often difficult for us to uh, acknowledge as real. It, it, it's a challenging thing. Um, and so here's what the, kind of the warning. As, as we approach the parables, if we assume that our five senses, that our perception of reality is the, is the end all, is the limit of what can be, then we will read these parables and find nothing more than familiar images. But if like the disciples, we come to Jesus in faith, if we come to Jesus and allow the parable to draw us in closer, to ask questions, to not immediately write it off, to not say that's foolish, but to linger and let depth begin to grow with humility, open to the idea that perhaps we don't know it all or get it all. If we can approach them with this kind of curiosity about what lies beyond our perceptions, perhaps the mystery of the kingdom will begin to unfold. But there's challenges. There's the challenge of what I just mentioned, that it's hard to believe in an invisible kingdom, right? There's also challenges with our own hearts that the text is going to address. There's challenges with the soil. Little, little side note, by the way, the same word for soil that the, the people are standing on the soil when Jesus kind of draws back to teach them is the same word used for soil here. So I think Jesus is actually setting up that he's the sower giving the teaching, and they are the ones who are on, on the soil. Just, just a side note there. So there's three images we get in our text. Let's look at Jesus' explanation for these, uh, these three images. So let's look at the seed sown along the path, um, starting in verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Let's pause here for a moment. You see, Jesus is recognizing that there is real spiritual evil at work in our world. That there is an enemy named Satan, and he has a team uh, of, of his demons and uh, spiritual beings that, that are whispering lies and causing chaos and seeking to destroy throughout our world. And in and, and this situation, perhaps someone hears of God's forgiveness. They hear of the welcome of Jesus. They hear about his good news kingdom that welcomes the poor and the lame and the sick to come to him. His promise to set the world right, but immediately the voice of the enemy comes in and it stills, steals their joy. It robs that faith. Think of someone hearing the goodness of Jesus and hearing about him and immediately the, the retort comes to their mind. That's not true. Look at all those hypocrites. Look at how religious people treated you as a child. Look how mean they were to you. Look how little empirical evidence there is. 
you look like an idiot. There's, there's many different ways the voice of the enemy can come. Look at how foolish you would seem to your friends, or perhaps out of shame when we hear the good news of God's forgiveness. We hear, no one would ever forgive you. No one would ever love you. No one would ever want you, certainly not the God of the universe. One of the most disheartening things uh, you learn as a parent is that the enemy and the voice of evil doesn't only attack us, but it also attacks our children. And I remember when one of our kids were young, went into the room, and you just kind of know as a parent when, when your child is upset and something's off and started talking to this, the child. I won't, won't say which child it was, although one of three guests. Um, and I began to unearth what was going on, and, and my child shared with me uh, in, in, a, in a moment of brokenness, uh, Daddy, I just feel so ugly. So, uh, I, no, she said, I'm so ugly. And I said, honey, where did you hear that? Where did you hear that? And she hadn't watched something. She wasn't on social media. She, you know, we don't call our children ugly. We've never said that. I'm 100% sure of that. I've said things I regret, but I've never said that. And I realized in that moment as we talked about it, she had had that thought. You're ugly. Nobody likes you. Nobody planted that there. But there is an enemy who is out to seek and devour and destroy. And oftentimes, one of the tactics is it comes in as if it's our own voice, condemning, uh, doubting, all those things. And we just kind of take it as us and we kind of take it as true. And, and parents, if we're not aware, guarding our children's hearts, the lies are going to come. Now, I'm not saying that every lie that comes into their head is like the devil on your child's shoulder. Like, don't freak out, kids. Relax a little bit. But there is a reality that the echo of those voices has infiltrated our culture, has infiltrated even us as fallen parents, and, and, and our kiddos hear attacks. And, and let me say this to you parents too. You also will hear things about how unlovable you are about how hypocritical you are, about how, how hypocritical perhaps the church is. Maybe, maybe your heart has been hurt and now you've let in the voice of bitterness. Whatever it is, there is an enemy who attacks and it robs faith and it can happen in the blink of an eye. And just a side note, by the way, this is why our words, why I think the Apostle Paul and throughout the New Testament, our words are so important. What we speak is so important. How we speak our tone and our words with our children, with our friends, with our family, with our spouse are important because we are either building people up in Christ and truth and love or we are joining with the chorus of demons and tearing people down. And there's no, there's no in the middle. That's why Paul talks so much about speech. That's why the book of James says the tongue is so deadly, so powerful. So let, let it be a warning Jesus says that's one of the challenges of people believing. Um, number two, there, were, there was also seed sown on rocky ground, verses 16 through 17. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. When the tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. See, Jesus acknowledges that there are those who will hear his teaching. They will hear these parables that are being taught 
this good news of the kingdom of God breaking in in him, and they'll initially be really excited about it, and they'll receive it with what looks like great joy, but then as persecution arises, or as earlier in the text, the imagery, the sun gets hot, they'll fall away. They'll wither. Why? Because they weren't rooted deeply, right? Another agricultural image. If, if a tree is not rooted, when the sun comes, it withers and dies. And Jesus is acknowledging this. In our own culture, we've experienced this and kind of revivalist Christianity, oftentimes where what it meant to, to kind of do evangelism or to have people come is, hey, you pray this prayer, you come up front, we put up a big tent, we have thousands of decisions for Christ. But decisions don't always equal disciples. And how many people have we told that, hey, you come up front, you do this magic little prayer, and you're good? How many decisions without discipleship? How many people did, did come forth, and, and they, they're exactly a living example of the seed sown on the rocky ground, and they walked away with the buzz, and they were hyped. But when the music went away, and when the hype went away, and the buzz faltered, and suffering came, and difficulties came, what happened to the faith? Jesus says if there's no root, if we're not grounded in his love, if we don't grow in theological depth, if we don't grow in his community, the church, we will wither. I love the positive aspect of this that Paul says in Colossians. Colossians 2, 6 through 7, he says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established, that word established means strengthened, in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, the third obstacle to belief in Jesus' kingdom, to receiving his word, is that they were sown, the seed was sown among the thorns. Let's look at verse 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. I don't know about you, but this image for me, especially out of all three of these, is, is kind of a gut punch. Do you, do you feel this pressing in on us in our culture? How many times have, have I been excited? Maybe I've even got into God's word or, or, or even shared the word with someone and yet, how quickly bombarded we are with distractions. How quickly our attention turns from, from Christ and his goodness to something else. Here comes the stress of paying bills. Here comes the endless kids' activities for those who are at that stage. Here comes the raise opportunity in exchange for more time with my family and church. Here comes iPhone notification that I got another like or some family member made a controversial post on my post. We live in a culture of endless distractions, things that parade urgency to us. They demand our attention right then. And if we're not careful, there'll be the things that feel like real life, right? No time to reflect upon the mercies of Christ, to think deeply of him. I've got real things to deal with. You see, these parables help us answer two questions. The first question is more of an obvious one. It's why does it seem that many people 
reject Jesus and the good news of the kingdom. This is the primary really thing he's answering to his disciples because he's preaching of this good news kingdom. He's the Messiah, and yet he would be rejected by many. And what he's saying here is that although the seed, the message of Christ, it's being sown liberally, which, by the way, should be an encouragement for us. Share the gospel liberally. Throw it out there, right? But they're like, Jesus, why is, why is it not being received? Why is it being rejected? Well, the problem isn't with the message. The problem is with the soil. It's with the hearts of people, that they're hardened, and they, and they miss the Son of God as he comes right before them. I think part of our even seeing our own hearts turn to good soil is, is that switch of realizing, hey, God is not the problem. Maybe the problem is my own heart, is my own soil. So it answers the question, why do people reject Jesus? But not only does the parable address why people find it difficult to believe in the hidden role of Christ, but it also alerts us as believers to the way we can quench the kingdom coming in our own life. It also, for us as believers, we have to recognize those patterns of unbelief, those three areas we looked at, the being sowed along the path and spiritual warfare, being snatched up, being uh, snuffed out by the, the rocks and the, and, the, and, the, and the rocky soil, having thorns, all those things are still issues for us. In fact, our faith is not something that we just, we kind of do it and then we just kind of glide. Our faith is something that is ongoing. There's this sense in which as a disciple of Jesus, I'm continually uh, cultivating the soil of my own heart. And I don't say this so we can start fearing our salvation or worrying, well, am I in or out? It's not trying to get there. It's trying to say, hey, if you want to see the kingdom come, pay attention to the soil of your heart. Cultivate it. Care for it. We cannot be spiritually asleep or unwatchful against the attacks of evil. Another way I've seen spiritual warfare at times take place is how many of you have had a uh, kind of an incident happen of someone, especially maybe during COVID when we weren't face-to-face, an email is sent, and all of a sudden, what do our minds start doing? They start building narratives about these emails, Right? And it, you know, or maybe you're driving in traffic. Here's a more, and, and and this person cuts you off. All what happens immediately? You're building. You're trying to make sense of it. And typically, what you do is you build a pretty nasty narrative. Like this is kind of our flesh coming out about that other person. Or maybe you project a lot of fear and anxiety on this email. And what can happen is is a little voice can come in and start spurring that on. Before you know it, you're worked into a frenzy off something that's just happening in your head. Maybe I'm just weird. Maybe I'm the only one with the problem. Um, but we, too, have to, have to listen to the voices that, that come in, the little, the little serpents that try to sneak into the garden, if you will. We have to be awake and watchful, as the Apostle Paul encourages us, so that we can recognize what is the voice of the Father, what is the voice of the Spirit and of truth, and what is the voice, the lie of the enemy. We too have to make sure that we are developing deep theological rootedness in Christ 
so that when hardship and difficulty comes, which it will, our faith will not just falter and wither away, but we'll be deeply rooted in the love of Christ. This doesn't mean that we always suffer 100% well. We're never going to do that. But it means that we are so rooted in God's love that no matter what comes, we trust him. We keep coming to him. And we too need to be aware of the danger of the cares of the world, the desire for riches or of things, and how they can choke out our longing for the kingdom. I I think maybe this is the most relevant, I mean, the others are important, but this is a very relevant one for our day, for our time. Distracted by passing pleasures, worthless pursuits, we often become dulled into thinking that is all there is. That is all there is. We, we lose sight of the hidden kingdom of God when all that we do is distract ourselves in our phone, in our work, and in our busy tasks. And we have to do those things. But we can't lose sight. We can't lose our spiritual awareness that there is a kingdom that has come in the person of Jesus. And there is a promise that one day it will come in full. Listen, church family, I'm, I'm with you in this struggle. And as we talk about it at the, at, at the start, it's already a challenge to believe in a God who is hidden. It is challenging to believe in a king whose kingdom is not uh, yet fully realized. Just yesterday, one of our children shared with me, they were like, Dad, I think I'm starting to believe the Bible and trust it, but I just don't know that Jesus is coming back. It just doesn't seem like he is, right? And I wanted to say, no, he is, of course. And I saw, I saw in my own heart, you know what, I kind of feel that way too. Like, is he ever coming back? It is a challenge. And, and, and yet God has not left us to ourselves, but he's equipped us with the Holy Spirit to cultivate the soil of our hearts. We go on in this text to learn more about the kingdom. We learn in verse 26 that the kingdom grows not by human labor, but mysteriously through the working of the Spirit. He gives us an image there of a farmer who plants the seed. And then what does the farmer do? He goes and he sleeps. And something mysterious happens in the night. It grows. Plants grow. The kingdom is unstoppable. It will grow. In verse 30, we learn that the kingdom of God is like often is compared to a mustard seed. Another thing that that it's a tiny speck of a seed. But he says, when it, when it has its full growth, one day it will be a, uh, up to a 10-foot-tall, massive, giant tree. Again, he's trying to help us understand a spiritual reality and to understand the expectations of the kingdom that he is bringing. Jesus' teaching about the kingdom is absurd if all there is is what we can see in front of us. It's absurd to those who demand a quick fix, a glorious political or human-powered revolution. It's absurd to those who uh, refuse to admit that their mind and perception might not be the end of reality. It's absurd to those who think that the world will be made right through might or human effort or education. Ultimately, it's absurd to those who refuse to come to Jesus and learn as his disciples. You see, the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus Christ. But it wasn't what they were thinking. And it often isn't what we are thinking. Ultimately, in some ways, these parables prepare us to open our minds 
to the paradoxical mystery that would ultimately be revealed later in Mark's gospel. That God would in fact win, that he would defeat his enemies, but it wasn't with the power of the sword, it was through death. That death would be defeated by death, by Jesus giving up his life, not by taking up arms and asserting power, but by laying down his life. Remember the parable from John's gospel that says, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the kingdom. This is the good news that we believe, that we have put our trust in. And I want to invite you this morning to just be mindful and be aware that for, if you're a believer, that we need to cultivate the soil. Augustine says this. He has a quote about tilling the soil, and I'll wrap up with this. He says, Work diligently the soil while you may. Break up your fallow with the plow. Cast away the stones from your field and dig out the thorns. Be unwilling to have a hard heart, such as makes the word of God to no effect. Be unwilling to have a thin layer of soil in which the root of divine love can find no depth in which to enter. Be unwilling to choke the good seed by the cares and the lusts of this life when it is being scattered for your good. When God is the sower and we are the ground, we are called to work to be good ground. This is the invitation this morning to humble our hearts and receive God's word. And where we don't understand, where we're confused, where we don't have it all down yet, keep coming to Jesus. Keep trusting in him. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the beauty of your word that you speak to us, not just with distilled down little truths, but you speak in a way that we can understand. You speak about heavenly mysteries and things beyond our sight in ways that we can imagine them. And I pray as we meditate on these words, as we go throughout our week and think of even these images of the soil, that your spirit would use that to help us cultivate our own soil, to to be aware of our own hearts and where we are, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, ultimately, we believe you are the cultivator of our hearts. You're the one who leads us to repentance, and I pray that where we have not repented, where we have been prideful, where we have quenched your kingdom, that you would bring us to a place of humility, of softness, of receptivity to your rule and your reign. Jesus, encourage your church this morning. Remind us that you are indeed ruling on the throne of heaven and that you will indeed come again to make all things new. And anyone who comes to you, you would give the right to become sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.